This morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to James chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 14 to 26 in your hearing. This morning, I want to preach to you a sermon that's entitled Saving Faith. Saving Faith. James chapter 2, I'll begin reading at verse 14. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, it was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. May God add his richest blessing to the reading and preaching, understanding and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This morning, I want us to tackle the question, what is saving faith? What is saving faith? Is saving faith merely an affirmation of a certain set of religious beliefs? In other words, does salvation occur when we have right thinking in our minds? Or is saving faith not only the affirmation of a certain set of religious beliefs, but it's also the stirring of our emotions, something similar to what John Wesley experienced in his autobiography when he said that on the night that he was saved, his heart was strangely warmed. So is salvation something that takes place when we not only have the right thoughts in our minds, but the right feelings in our hearts? Or the saving faith Not only the affirmation of a certain set of religious beliefs and the stirring of our emotions, but in addition to all of that, it includes the decision of the will that leads to a life of obedient action. In other words, is saving faith somehow not only the thoughts in our mind and the feelings in our heart, but it also has something to do with the action and activity of our lives. What is the underlying connection between faith and works? These are the questions that 
Pastor James, the younger brother of Jesus, seems to tackle in our passage of James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. In this passage, James is describing for us saving faith. The author of the Hebrew letter says that faith is being sure of what is hoped for and certain of what we do not see. It was Haddon Robinson who said that faith is simply taking God at his word. It was Warren Wiersbe who said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It is obeying in spite of consequences. So this morning I ask you, what does saving faith look like? James gives us three possibilities The first two, he tells us what is not saving faith. And then at the end, he describes for us what saving faith actually looks like. He says that saving faith is not dead faith. That's verses 14 to 17. It's not demonic faith. That's verses 18 to 19. But it is demonstrated faith. That's verses 20 to 26. So this morning, I want us to walk the tightrope with Pastor James. I want you to feel how James is teetering and tottering on that tightrope between holiness and heresy. I want you to feel the tension as he navigates the tightrope and as we follow him together. James first says that he describes dead faith. Once again, look with me at verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it in the same way? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. What James is telling the early church, he's telling this church. That faithful words must be accompanied by faithful works. That doctrine and deeds are two sides of the same coin. Let's be very clear. We are saved by faith alone. But we use that faith to do good works in the name of Christ. It is faith alone that saves us. But that faith that stands alone is never by itself. Let me uh, lean into a friend of mine named John Calvin. Calvin just simply said that faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. We have to have not only holy words, but we've got to have holy works that accompany those words of faith. James says, if all you have are just words but no works, you have dead faith. He seems to describe this three times in our passage, verse 17, verse 20, and verse 26. He uses that imagery, that vocabulary of dead faith. He is saying that faith must not only be verbal, but our faith must be visible. Not only is it what we say, but it's how we live that demonstrates the faith that has been deposited inside of us. He gives an example that is all too common in his day and in our day. He describes one who is suffering from poverty. He said, suppose a person comes to you 
in need of clothes and food. And you have the capacity to meet that need. But you say to them, go, I wish you well. Keep warm, well fed. God bless you. Love his heart. I am going to be praying for you. It's not that James is demoting the value of prayer, but he's simply saying that you and I could do more with the faith that's been given to us by God. If all we do is just verbally affirm our faith, but we don't visually demonstrate our faith, then you and I just simply have dead faith. Because after all, if you say to a person who's coming to you for food, I wish you to be well fed. How's that person going to be well fed? He's coming to you to get some food. If a person comes to you in need of clothing and you say, keep warm, how's that person going to keep warm when he's coming to you for some clothes to place on his back? He needs for you to do something. She needs for you to do something. And in response, all we say is a verbal affirmation. Go. I wish you well. God bless you. God help you. I'll be praying for you. Love your little bitty heart. Right? I mean, we just kind of give some of those pious words. Uh, James says the church is stuffed with people who have good theology but bad practice. Stuffed with people who know what to say and how to sound religious. And all the while, their faith is as dead as a doornail. James is telling the church in the first century what James is telling the church in the 21st century. Some people think they've got saving faith and all they've got is dead faith. And it's dead faith that will not save them. And he defines that dead faith by word with no works. James is calling the church not to have dead faith, but demonstrated faith, faith that is on display. This is the faith that he saw in the life of big brother Jesus. Let me just give you a couple of examples. The greatest miracle outside the resurrection of Jesus was the feeding of the 5,000. It's recorded for us in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all see it as a mighty, massive miracle of the Messiah. On that day, Jesus fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Most conservatively estimate that on that hillside stood 20,000 individuals, 5,000 men, probably 5,000 ladies, and probably 10,000 children. You add all that together, 20,000 hungry people. All day long, Jesus had been feeding them spiritually. He had been feeding them with the word of truth. He had been preaching to them. He had been feeding them in the sense of healing their sick. But it got late in the day. The disciples came and said, Jesus, these people are now getting hangry. It's beyond hunger. Now they're just getting angry. It's late in the day. You probably should send them away to the various marketplaces at Capernaum and Bethsaida. Send them away so they can find something to eat. In other words, what the disciples are saying is Jesus send them to Chick-fil-A and Popeye's. Let them decide which one has the best chicken sandwich. You just send them away and let them get something else to eat. Which is a good idea, except for the fact that if 20,000 people had converged on Bethsaida, 20,000 people converged on Capernaum, there's no marketplace in the first century that had enough food to feed 20,000 hungry individuals. So Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you give them something to eat. We don't have anything. We'll go find something. And the best they could do is that they robbed this little kid of his lunch, right? I mean, they got 
a little kid who was willing to give his lunch to Jesus and the little kid had five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, at first, that sounds like a big lunch. I mean, five loaves of bread and two fish. This is the only kid in the entire crowd had a responsible mom. The only one who said, Junior, you better pack something because it could be a long day. Five loaves of bread and two fish. If a kid eats five loaves of bread every day, he's going to be constipated for weeks. I mean, I got to wonder a little bit about why she would give so much bread. But then I realized it's not five loaves of bread. It's five crackers. It's not uh, two eight-pound or eight eight pound groupers. It's just a couple of sardines. This is a meager lunch to a meager boy. It's nothing. And yet it's all the disciples could find. This little boy was willing to give it to Jesus. Jesus took the meal and he blessed it and multiplied it, gave it to the disciples who in turn gave it to the crowd. Every gospel writer tells us that on that day, everybody ate till they had their fill. They were completely satisfied. There were 12 baskets left over, just enough bread and just enough fish to feed the 12 disciples. Jesus did not waste one morsel. Everything he created was used to satisfy the people on that hillside. Well, this is a great example of how Jesus fed them and then he fed them. He fed them physically and he fed them spiritually. I guess he could have said to them, go, I wish you well. I'll be praying for you. I hope you find some food somewhere. God bless you. Love your heart. I hope that you can survive in this world. You go and be blessed. Just know I'll be praying for you. Just feast on me by faith. Okay, that's great. But these people are starving. So Jesus fed them and then he fed them. He showed us the value of having a faith that's on display, that's demonstrated so that everybody could see. I think that James is thinking about this when he says faith without deeds is dead. If all you've got are right words, you got nothing. Because those right words have to be matched up with right works. It's not that you're saved by your works, but you most certainly are saved to work for the good and glory of God. There's another example in the life and ministry of Jesus that comes from one of those famous well-spun parables. We made mention of it uh, not too many weeks ago. On one occasion, a hotshot lawyer fresh out of Harvard Law School came to Jesus and asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus took the lawyer right back to the law. How do you read it, he asked. And the lawyer said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you're exactly right. You passed the bar exam. You do both those things, you'll live. Now, this hotshot lawyer thought to himself, listen, I've been raised in a Jewish family. I know how to love God with everything that's inside of me. But Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who are the people that I have to be nice to? Who are the people I have to be loving towards? Because there are some weirdos and wackos out there, Jesus. Certainly you don't expect me to be nice to everybody that I see. I mean, I could give you a laundry list of some real, you know, goons that I, I don't think I need to be nice to. So Jesus, just help me kind of draw in the lines and put the parameters in place. Who is my neighbor? Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he falls into the hands of robbers. They beat him, strip him, leave him half dead in his own pool of blood. 
A Jewish priest, a Jewish Levite come by. They don't stop. They don't help. It's a Samaritan. It's the last person on the planet that's going to help a Jewish man. It's a Samaritan who comes, gets his hands dirty, helps him out. It is so visual. It is so demonstrated. It is, it is just on display. He gets down there and bandages wounds. I mean, his blood now gets on the Samaritan. The Samaritan picks him up, puts him on his own beast of burden, guides him into town, watches him during the whole night. The next morning, gives two silver coins to the innkeeper and says, you watch after my newfound friend. And if you incur any other expense, you know I'm good to cover for it when I come back in town next time. And Jesus looked at the downcast lawyer and said, who acted neighborly? This man couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He said, the one who had mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. In the ministry of Jesus, mercy is something that not only we receive, but mercy is something that we show. Mercy is something that that we get from God. It's something that we show on behalf of God. Now, we love to receive mercy. If I asked for a show of hands, all of you would say, I love to receive God's mercy. I love for God to withhold the punishment that should be mine, but was meted out against Jesus. Oh, I love the mercy of God. But how many of us equally love to show that mercy unto others? In the ministry of Jesus, mercy is not only something you receive, but it's something that you show. So James is here telling the church, he's remembering and reminiscing about instructions that he received from big brother Jesus. And he's saying that faith without action is dead. Now let's be very clear. Is James trying to say that we are saved by our works? No. Let me ask you this. Is a person saved by coming to church? No. But the saved do come to church. Is a person saved by participating in Crossover 2.0? No. But the saved do participate in Crossover 2.0. Is a person saved by being generous with resources? No. But the saved are generous with their resources toward the work and will of God. Once again, it's John Calvin, who is very insightful in this moment. When Calvin says it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. It is never by itself. Justifying faith never stands on its own, but it always prompts us to do something for the kingdom of God. So James first tells the church, don't have dead faith. Secondly, he describes demonic faith. That's verses 18 and 19. Now, when I say demonic faith, I don't mean faith in demons. I mean faith like demons. Revisit with me verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In the strictest sense of the word, Demons are believers. Now don't boo me, don't hiss me, don't throw tomatoes at me, just hear me out. In the strictest sense of the word, demons are believers. They affirm a certain set of religious beliefs. They believe that there is one God. 
They believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. They believe and they know that God made all things seen and unseen, visible and invisible. The demons know and believe the truth of all the Old Testament stories. The demons believe that God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth some 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ. The demons know the facts that Jesus is fully God and fully human. The demons know that Jesus lived a perfect life. They believe that on a Friday in the third decade of the first century that Jesus had a crossbeam strapped to his back and he went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha and there on Mount Calvary he was stretched wide and died. They believe, they know that Jesus died on a cross. His dead body was taken off the cross and placed into a tomb. They thought that was the end of the story. But to the shock of all the demons, on the third day, Jesus actually got up. The dead body began to breathe again. And the demons today, they know that Jesus is alive. They know that the tomb is empty. The demons aren't dumb. They've read the back of the book. They know that one day Jesus will return. He will set up his kingdom and that will be the end of their demise. They know this and all the while they're trying to derail and distract and destroy as many people as possible before that day actually happens. Oh, the demons, they believe. You you know that James is insinuating all that I just said because he makes mention That they believe that God is one. That reference to God being one is a reference to the great Shema. The great Shema was spoken numerous times every day by every Jew. The great Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. The Lord our God, he is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is something that would have been drilled deep into every single Jewish boy and girl. Everybody would have known there is one God. We are monotheistic. We are not polytheistic. We do not believe in many gods. We believe in one God. And this one God is true and real and alive. So everybody growing up in the church at Jerusalem, listening to James preach each and every week, they, they knew that there is one God. And James says, you believe that there is one God. Even the demons believe that. Every time Jesus bumps into the demonic in the Gospels, they understand precisely who he is. The disciples, a few fries short of a Happy Meal. The crowd, not the sharpest tools in the shed. The demonic, they know exactly who Jesus is. When Jesus confronted Legion, the demons said, what do you want with us, Jesus Son of the Most High God. They knew precisely who they were dealing with. They thought they could outnumber him. They were 6,000 to 1. And even though they were outnumbering Jesus, Jesus had outmatched them. Because he's always greater than the demonic. And so even the demons, they know who Jesus is. When you stop and allow this truth to sink deeply into your soul, you must conclude what I have concluded then an atheist is dumber than a demon. An atheist says there is no God. 
And every demon says, how can you be so stupid? Yes, there's a God. Everybody knows there's a God. All the demons know there is a God. An atheist says there is no God. An atheist is dumber than a demon. And just because the demon affirms a religious set of beliefs, that does not mean that he is saved. It does not mean that the demons are saved. They're as saved as much as as Fido, the family dog. They are not saved. It goes one step further. James says, you believe that God is one? Even the demons believe and they shudder. What does that mean? It means that the realization of the facts of the gospel has prompted an emotional response. They shudder. The demons know how to shout. The demons know how to speak. The demons, they they know how to shudder. They have an emotional response to the reality of the gospel. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe and they have an emotional response. They shudder. Now, friend, let me be very clear. I think that we do need to worship God with all of our mind. And I do think that we need to worship God with all of our heart. I think it needs to be cranial and cardiological. I think that our worship before God needs to be heady and hearty. I think that our worship before God needs to be with what we know and how we feel. But let me be very quick to say that if all we do is leave it there with just some head knowledge and some heart experiences, James says what we've got is not saving faith, it's demonic faith. The demons know how to do that. If all we do is know how to hoop, howler, and shout here uh, in the worship service, but it doesn't affect how we live outside the doors, then all we've got is a demonic faith. Even the demons know how to get their praise on. Even the demons know how to shudder. Even the demons know how to have an emotional response. Now you've been with me long enough to know I'm an emotional guy. I get excited about certain things. Jesus being at the top of the list. I get excited about who Jesus is. But James is cautioning us if all we have is an affirmation of some religious beliefs. And if all we have is an emotional response, then James would call that demonic faith. So then he comes to the conclusion of our passage and he says, I do not want for you dead faith. I do not want for you demonic faith. So pastor James, what do you want for the church of our Lord Jesus Christ? He says, third and finally, I want you to have demonstrated faith. It's verses 20 to 26. I just want you to revisit verse 24. In verse 24, James says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone or standing by itself. A person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. James would affirm that saving faith is demonstrated faith. Let me define it for you. Demonstrated demonstrated faith affirms a set of religious beliefs. And demonstrated faith experiences an emotional stirring. And demonstrated faith goes one step further 
that it is a decision of the will that results in obedient action. So what James is saying is that demonstrated faith has a mind that knows the truth, has a heart that desires the truth, has a will that displays the truth of the gospel. So we are to have a demonstrated faith. Our saving faith doesn't just bring us into church on Sunday, but our saving faith carries us outside the sanctuary to display that faith Sunday to Sunday, uh, uh, all throughout the week for a watching world to see the God who has transformed us from the inside out. We can't just say we have a verbal faith. We have a verbal and a visual faith. Someone told me recently that we are fruit inspectors, that we just inspect the fruit in everybody's life. We're not judging each other. We're just examining the fruit. And this is the fruit that we produce. Is it good and tasty? Is it spoiling and rotten? What kind of fruit are we producing? This is what James is talking about. He gives two examples, both of them coming from the Old Testament. Abraham and Rahab. In good preacher fashion, he uses two examples on the opposite ends of the spectrum. One is a Jew, the other a Gentile. One is a man, the other is a woman. One is respected, the other is a harlot. One is called friend of God. The other was an enemy of God. Two people, opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet what James is telling us is that both of them demonstrated the faith that they professed. Abraham. Abraham was given a promise of God. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And he believed God. It was credited unto him as righteousness. That's Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 22, the promised child of God was given in the person of Isaac. And the Lord says to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, your one only son, your beloved son, Isaac. I want you to take him on Mount Moriah. And there I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice unto me. It's at this moment that most of us would have kind of just ducked out of the faith. We would have said, God, I'll do a lot for you, but there's a line somewhere. And when you ask me to slay my son, I'm not going to do it. Most of us would say, God, I'll follow you a lot of places. God, I'll do a lot of things for you. But if you ask me to sacrifice my child as a burnt offering unto you, and you've already stated that you do not delight in child sacrifice, uh, Lord, I, I, I think that one of us has made a mistake here. I don't know if I can do it. That's not what we read about Abraham. Abraham obeys God. His faith is not just verbal, it is visual. He doesn't have just holy words, but holy works. He takes his one and only son. The next morning, they load the donkey. He gets the servants. Off they go towards Mount Moriah. They see Mount Moriah, that great mountain in the distance. And Abraham says to the servants, you stay here. The boy and I will go worship, for we will go worship and we will come back. Even in that moment, Abraham believed in the power of the resurrection of God. Because only God, who has resurrection power, can enable Isaac to be raised from the dead. And proverbially speaking, in the heart of Abraham, he'd already slain his son. He'd already decided, this is how it's going to go down. And if I slay my son, God will have to raise my son. This is Abraham in Genesis. He already believes in the power of resurrection. Off they go to Mount Moriah. 
And along the way, I'm quite certain that Abraham told Isaac the whole story. By the time they make this trip, Isaac is 14 years old. He lays down willingly on this altar. On the way up the mountain, Isaac said, Dad, I, uh, I see the fire and I see the wood because you have conveniently strapped it to my back. But where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide the lamb, my son. I don't know how. I don't know when. But he will provide the lamb. You just got to trust me as I trust God. Isaac's 14 years old. He could whip his old man. He could outrace him down the mountain if he wanted to. Isaac voluntarily laid himself on the altar. Please see Jesus in that. That Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. Father Abraham places Isaac there on the altar. I'm sure that he covered up the face of his son Isaac. He raised the dagger in the air, hoping just one fatal strike, one fatal blow. He didn't want to be able to have to... to, to chop him up and cut him up so he just wanted one fatal strike and as he's about to drive the dagger into the life of his son it's the angel of God who says Abraham, Abraham stop now I know that you will not withhold anything from me not even your one only son Isaac and there, there in the thicket was a ram caught by its horns and Abraham sacrificed that ram that male lamb in the place of his son oh please see Jesus in that that Jesus was sacrificed in our spot and in our place and James says I want you to see that Abraham was justified Not merely by his faith, because faith alone is never alone. It's accompanied by action. In a similar way, the pastor wants to give us another example before he lands the sermonic plane. Let me remind you of Rahab, James says. Rahab was that harlot, that prostitute, that woman of the night. She lived in Jericho. The Israelites had already gone through the Red Sea. The stories were going before them of how their God was delivering them every step of the way. It is Moses who sent some spies into Jericho. Two of them knock, knock, knock on the front door of Rahab. Rahab lived in an apartment in the wall of Jericho. And Rahab said to these Israelite spies, I know that your God is real. She wasn't just claiming the God of Israel. She was claiming faith in Yahweh, the one true God of the universe. She took them in. She gave them hiding. A few moments later, some of her own countrymen knocked on her door. Have you seen the spies? We've heard that those Israelite spies are coming in. They're going to try to destroy the city. No, I haven't seen any spies. Actually, I did see a couple of spies, but they're not here. They're not, they're not uh, hiding on the roof. They're not up there at all. In fact, I told them to go. They're outside the city gate. If you go quickly, you just might find them. The countrymen left. And she went upstairs where she had hidden those two spies. And she said, I believe in your God. For when we hear the stories of what your God is doing, our hearts melt. 
Those Israelites, they witnessed to her, told her about Yahweh himself. They said, if you get your family in your apartment, when we circle this city and all the walls come a-tumbling down, your house will be spared. I just want you to leave that red scarlet cord hanging out the window. The the red scarlet cord that is going to help us get down to the ground. You just leave that red scarlet cord. Friend, I want you to see the thread that God has woven. That red scarlet, the blood of the lamb. It, it, It kind of weaves its way all throughout Old Testament, New Testament. Binds it together in a nice neat bow. I just see Jesus everywhere, don't you? And see, in this story of Rahab, there's that red scarlet cord that's hanging down. The Israelites come. They circle the city. You may know the story. They circle it several times on that last time they blow the trumpet and those walls come a tumbling down except for the little area where the red scarlet cord preserved life and they went and they found that Rahab and all of her family believed in Jesus oh friend I gotta tell you that God is a God who can use anybody who has saving faith Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a friend of God or a harlot of the night, God can use anybody who has saving faith in him. So that Rahab is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. That Rahab is the great-great-grandmother of King David. We have Rahab. God can use anybody who has saving faith. What is saving faith? It is not only merely an intellectual assent and affirmation of certain set of beliefs. It's not only just the stirring of emotions, but it's also the act of the will unto obedience unto God. And James says that is saving faith. So friend, this morning, I need to ask you, do you have saving faith? Listen, the point of this sermon is not confusion. And some of y'all are saying, great, because I'm kind of in a fog right now, pastor. The point is not confusion, but clarity. Do you have saving faith? I don't want you to have false hope. Uh, If you don't have saving faith, I want you to worry about that right now in this moment. I don't want to give you false hope and say everything's all right. As long as you walked an aisle, as long as you've gotten wet in the waters of baptism, everything's okay. No, the only person I want to worry about this is the person who needs to worry about this. Do you have saving faith? I don't want to give you false hope. On the flip side, if you have saving faith, I don't want you to worry that you don't. So let me ask you a few diagnostic questions. Do you believe that there is one God? Do you believe that this one God created the heavens and the earth merely by speaking them into existence? Do you believe That God made everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible. Do you believe that 2,000 years ago, God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth? Do you believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Do you believe that Jesus went up that hill of Calvary and he died in your place? And then his body was taken and placed into a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he got up. Do you believe that the tomb is empty? Do you believe that Jesus has ascended into the heavens? Do you believe that one day Jesus is coming back again? Do you believe? Do you have an affirmation of certain religious beliefs? Do you believe in the gospel? 
Do you know that when God gets in you, you can't help but your emotions will be stirred? Do you know that God has done so much good for you that sometimes you just can't be quiet? Sometimes you got to shout. Sometimes you got to get excited. I mean, don't just leave it for the football stadium for people to get excited when something good happens. Because if you hear my story, you know that God has been good to me. He has done more than score a touchdown. He's done more than get an interception. My God has lifted my feet out of the miry pit and he's placed me upon the solid rock. And when I remember what God has done, when I remember how good God has been to me, there are times I I just can't help but to shout. Do you know what it is to have your emotions stirred? But ultimately, do you know what it is for this faith to be so rooted inside of you that it dictates and dominates how you live life outside those doors? That because of that faith, that yes, it's in your mind and yes, it stirs your heart. But that faith, it, it impacts how you treat your spouse. It affects how you raise your children. It affects how you interact with each other. It affects how you make business deals. It affects what you do on your calendar. It even affects how you carve out time on a Sunday to go tell 1,300 homes that Jesus loves them. This gospel is not just in our head, and it doesn't just stir our heart, but it actually impacts the will so that we have a desire to be obedient unto Christ. We are not working for our salvation. Paul says we're working out our salvation. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. So I'll finish with this. I just need to tell you that I serve a risen Savior. I serve a risen Savior. I I, I serve a risen Savior because he's in the world today. And I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer and just the time I need him he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me a long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Don't forget the first line of that great hymn of the faith. We serve a risen savior. Why do we serve him? Because we have saving faith. It is a faith that not only Uh, affirms a certain set of religious beliefs. It's a faith that not only stirs us in emotions, but it's a faith that impacts how we live each and every day of our life. So James says, I want you to have a demonstrated faith. I want you to have a saving faith. And friend, this morning, if you don't have that, you can. All you have to do is ask and he will give it freely. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Move in our hearts, in our minds, in our feet. For those who 
have dead faith, but they think they have saving faith. For those who have demonic faith and they think they have saving faith, Lord, today, save your people. For those who have saving faith, help that to be affirmed in our heart and mind. As we walk out of here, help us to be faithful to your call. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.